is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. My guest this week is Kahari Parker. With his hometown of Chicago as his base, Kahari has been in demand for decades with touring and recording acts such as George Benson, Destiny's Child, and in the house band for the Smooth Jazz Cruise. If you want to help support what we do here at Working Drummer Podcast, we invite you to become a patron. During this weird season of isolation we're going through, I think this content would be especially useful, and I know we'd be especially grateful. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer, and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive educational content from our former guests. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. So Kahari struck me as a very instinctual drummer, both in terms of how he plays and how he thinks and talks about music. So this conversation deals with some simple but elegant concepts that I think are helpful for just about anyone. Hope you dig it. Here's Kahari Parker. What was the Chicago scene like as you were coming up? Who who were your sort of idols that you kind of looked at above you and and modeled yourself after in your in your early musical experience? Well, for me, um, in my earlier years, it was a lot of uh, gospel music. Uh, mm-hmm. I grew up learning how to play in church, and so um, you know all of the local guys that played in church. Um, it was a guy by the name of Leonard Stroud um, that played at my church. He was just like one of those freak of nature kind of guys. He was into like Frank Zappa and Chick Corea. Yeah. And uh, it was another guy by the name of Jim Walton, who was actually my first teacher. But he played drums at the church as well. And then it was guys like uh, Kevin Brunson that played for the Thompson Community Singers and uh, Ray Beatty that played for them as well. And then uh, guys like Oscar Seaton um, that played with Ramsey Lewis and uh, um, Ernie Adams uh, yeah. was another guy around town. So some jazz guys in there too, not just the gospel guys. Yeah, yeah. Later I, I started to, to mosey across some of the, the jazz guys. Yeah. What was like? What was the beginning of your training on drums in Chicago? Uh, like I said, it was, uh, definitely church for me. Um, we used to go to this church named Apostolic Church of God. And, um, I saw this guy, Jim Walton playing one day and I was just sitting there like, wow, I think I could do that. (laughs) And, uh, my mom asked him, did he give drum lessons? And he said, of course he did. Um, you know, bring me to the church on Tuesday nights and, and we'll do an hour lesson and see if I pick up. And he was great. You know, he, he taught me uh, rudiments to start off with a snare drum mm-hmm. and um, just a beginning book to, you know, pick up quarter notes, eighth notes, 16 notes, you know, right. and that was kind of like the beginning of it. And then when I went to high school, you know, I did all the, the jazz band, concert band, marching band, 
gospel chorus. So that was kind of the beginning as well. And my band director's husband actually played drums as well. Oh, nice. At school on Saturdays and take lessons from him as well. Cool, cool. Um, When I talk to drummers of a certain age, like I'm almost 40, you're 45. um, And I think uh, when, you know, when we started taking drum lessons, it was, it was like you said, like rudiments, reading, a lot more regimented. Um, and it, it kind of, um, I mean, it did two things. It, it weeded out, you know, kids who like weren't really serious <laughs> about doing it <laughs> because reading and rudiments are freaking boring. And, uh, you know, it, it's not unless you really want to play drums that you're going to kind of endure that, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of tedious work. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it also it also just lays uh, such a foundation for you to uh, to to lean on later. Um, but on the other hand, I'm wondering, like, I don't know how much teaching you do or how much uh, contact you come into with with kids or younger students. But um, in my teaching, uh, that's de-emphasized. Like, I just try to get kids playing their favorite songs as quickly as possible. Um, and you know, just at, at least in the beginning, kind of glossing over some of the technical stuff, the rudimental stuff, the reading. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have an opinion about those two approaches, um, you know, as it pertains to the, to the way your career has taken shape, um, versus the way you see some, some younger drummers coming up. Yeah. Well, I think, the way that you go about it now, I think it's more of an attractive way to get students involved. And that's the main goal. You want to make sure the students are involved. Mm-hmm. Because you do have those guys that are just like tyrants, like, yo, you cannot get behind a set of drums until you learn this set amount of rudiments or whatever. So it's just going to be me, you, a snare drum, and a book, you know? Right, right. And that could that could deter any kid immediately, you Mm -hmm. know? And I used to give lessons um, and I would start out that way. I would start out with rudiments and a snare drum. And if I see a kid, you know, kind of tapering off, then I would move to the drum set and just try to, you know, maybe figure out who's his favorite player and try to get into teaching them a song that way. But the main purpose is to keep the kid involved to keep them inspired to, to play drums, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you were taking lessons as a, as a young kid, um, was there, uh, was there music you were into or drummers you were into that, that, you know, you didn't really get to explore in your lessons because they were kind of more regimented about the rudiments and the, and the, uh, the reading and so forth. Yeah, definitely. I was, um, because of this guy, Leonard Stroud, I was into Steve Gadd and, Dave Weckl and Dennis Chambers really young mm-hmm. because of the music he was turning me on to, but my teacher was not even having me try to go into that direction yet yeah. before I got my rudimental base down, you know? Right, right. Yeah. At, at what point did you get to go in that direction? I say I was about 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, my teacher saw that I started advancing really quickly. And I think it was a lot because of what I was listening to. And um, I also had a good friend in high school by the name of Kirk Marshall that played drums as well. And Kirk was into the the more rock side of things, more of like In Living Color and Metallica. 
And so he was turning me on to that stuff, and I was turning him on to the jazz stuff. And we were just eating this stuff up daily, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I was about 15 and 16 when I started to explore more of the jazz things and, and get into what Dave Wecker and Steve Gadd were doing, you know. Right. It's it's funny you mentioned that, uh, like, right around that 15, 16 age, and, and you mentioned you had, what was your buddy's name? Kirk Marshall. Cool, cool. So, like, when I was in high school, right around that same age, I had a buddy, a drummer buddy uh, named Eric Lucero, and it was the same relationship. Like, we were just listening all the time, like, turning each mm-hmm. other on to different stuff. You know, our world just revolved around Neil Peart and Vinnie Paul. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we were just in it in it together all the time. And it's something that's maybe, you know, not talked about or acknowledged enough is, like, everybody acknowledges their mentors and their teachers, you know. But I think yeah. most of us, most of us at some point had, like, a contemporary, like a, a brother, a sister, who who we were like just pushing each other and and you know throwing throwing stuff at each other all the time listening together and playing together and um definitely yeah do you does he still play drums that buddy of yours yeah he's still playing um he actually he moved to atlanta some some years ago and um he's doing more on the sound side and he's playing bass and he plays drums every now and again, but he's definitely expanded his horizons a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've been here four years. I haven't I haven't uh, come across his name, but I'll, I'll keep a lookout for him. Keep an eye out for him. He's out there. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, so uh, as you're, you know, progressing through your high school years, you're doing a bunch of playing, you're doing a bunch of listening. Is it on your radar to go to college? Uh, yeah, it was on my radar to go to college. Um, my band director was, was, uh, one of those people who instilled in us very early. It's like, if you're going to be in band, you can use this as a ticket to pay for school. You don't have to pay for school. Yeah. A band scholarship. You can go to school to study anything, but you could use this music program to get you through college for free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so she instilled that into us, like our freshman, sophomore year of high school, you know, mm-hmm. it was all, always on us about keeping up good grades and, and studying our instrument, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did you end up pursuing a, a scholarship? I did. I did. Uh, I went to Bethune-Cookman College uh, in Daytona Beach, Florida, uh, only wound up going for a semester because I didn't realize that going away um, from home was going to be too much for the kid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of got into a little bit of trouble. And, but <laughs> that same teacher, oddly enough, wound up teaching at Chicago State University. Oh, wow. Like, before I graduated high school. Uh-huh. And her and my mom stayed in contact. So my mom told her what was going on and wound up getting another scholarship to Chicago State University. Chicago State University. Okay, I I know nothing about that school. I know I know a little bit about a couple Chicago area schools like DePaul and Northwestern. Um, okay. But what what kind of a place was Chicago State? Chicago State University. Uh, it's known for a small music community because they've always had a small music program. Mm-hmm. Uh, once my band director Roxanne Stevenson got there, she kind of started to grow the program. Um, a little bit more. And even in her um, teaching at Chicago State University, she started training students um, to be teachers 
you know, you could be elementary education teacher or high school teacher and still do whatever you want to, but use this as income to fund your life. Mm -hmm. Always, you know, teaching with a purpose. And uh, so um, I came out of there. My friend Y.L. Douglas that plays with Barry Manilow came out of there. Cool. Um, This guy, Ron Walters, that plays keyboards, he's playing with uh, Barry Manilow as well. He came out of Chicago State. We had a couple of guys that came out of Chicago State that's in the industry now. Yeah, yeah. Um, And was that uh, music program sort of... um more more classically oriented or was there a jazz program was it was it more vocational like a berkeley type or uh no 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 it was uh, it was definitely uh, more focused on jazz um a little bit of classical music they had a good gospel music program there and they uh, they also had a percussion instructor on there named Mark Smith, who uh, he was into the steel pans. Oh yeah, yeah, kinda, yeah. He kind of got us into that kind of music, and uh, he was into vibes and marimba. So he kind of he got us off into that side of music as well. Yeah, cool. Um, and what what effect on your sort of overall career or your overall approach to music do you think? that smaller type of school had as opposed to going to like a big, huge, you know, world renowned, uh, (laughs) music school. I think for me, the best thing I got out of that program was, um, to really focus in on, on material, Mm. material that you're given or material that you're trying to learn because the teachers with that, the smaller classes, they really had time to focus on you and your parts. And that made me focus on parts and everything. So it really, it, that stuck with me my whole career, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I've attended a couple different, uh, universities, um, none of which were super huge. Um, and for someone like me and maybe like you who, you know, in, in their college years, isn't super, self-motivated. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think, I think that's a good environment. If, if somebody's just kind of like, you know, checking in on you and helping you along and, and it's a more nurturing environment, whereas a place like Berkeley or North Texas or something, that's, that's a place for like self-driven people, <laughs> you know, yeah, who, who yeah. thrive in a competitive environment and, um, you know, their teachers just give them like a stack of shit and it's like, come back next week. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that definitely helped me out because um, I didn't know that I wanted to be a musician for a living. Or I knew I definitely didn't want to teach right out of college. Right. That was the only thing I was sure of. But other than that, I was trying to figure it out. You know, I was working a job at UPS and kind of gigging around town while I was going to college. But I never saw myself as a gigging musician. You know, well, right. That was my other question. Like, did you have, you know, did you have any sort of vision about what your career in, in music could be? Or were you just kind of going to college because it, it was what you were told you should do? And I like music, so let's do some music. And, uh, you know, at, at what point did you kind of um, develop, uh, you know, more specific goals or, or visions about what your career could be? Yeah, I um, I definitely I definitely 
was not focused on becoming a musician in my earlier days. You know, mm-hmm. I um, I think I went to school because my mom was like, either you go to school or you get a job and get an apartment. Right. And I was not ready to get an apartment. So <laughs> <laughs> school was the best choice at the time, you know. But um, I think I was probably around 19 or 20 years old when I realized, man, I could really make some money doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in my junior year of college and a friend of mine was uh, touring with this group out of L.A. called Immature. And uh, he asked me, uh, would I be interested in covering a Christmas tour with them? And so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. You know, he's like, yeah, you got to go to L.A. And, you know, we rehearsed there and it's a two week tour to be really quick and easy. So it's like, OK, that's, you know, Christmas break for me at school. I could go out there really quickly and uh, and and make the money and come back home, you know. And uh, that's when I started to realize that this could really be a lucrative situation, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and aside from the money, uh did it kind of um, give you a glimpse of just what your your you know your day to day life could be like, like a, you know a life in music, not just a, a life at UPS and some nights in music. <laughs> yeah, it definitely uh, turned me on to a bigger picture, you know. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of like the first time I had ever played with like click tracks and you know. Um, a whole bunch of show tracks going on. And I was just like, it was a whole new world for me, you know? Right. Right. Well, and that's it. Seeing that was like, that's how everybody did it in LA. So I'm just like, wow, you know, that was a whole new world for me. Right. It's, and you know, you, you said you were in your junior year in college. Um, like, you know, for, for this two week tour, um, how far out of your depth were you, <laughs> uh, you know, as, as far as like doing a show like that, playing with a click, uh, had you done anything like that in your college classes or lessons or, or was this just all completely new, like trial by fire, learn on the yeah. job? It was pretty much learn on the job for me. Yeah. Um, I had played with click tracks in the studio prior to that, but nothing ever lied, you know, mm-hmm. so that was, you know, um, all trial and error. And more, you know, more success than error, I pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think it was more success because they called me back, you know. Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we always say like a you know, a, a connection or a relationship will get you the first call, but if if you don't show up and play, you're not getting that second call. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so did you end up graduating college? You know what? I actually didn't. Uh-huh. Um they called me back for a second tour and I said, okay, I could, uh, I could come back and finish college. I'll go knock this tour out and I'll come back next semester. And, uh, I had just had a son at the time. So it was like, everything was financial driven at that point. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, I'll come back and finish college after that. And I've been touring ever since. Wow. That's I really have not cool. finished college. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's all right. I mean, so many, so many, uh, drummers we've talked to, you know, either never went to college in the first place, um, because they were already working or, uh, you know, went to college for a little bit, finished half of it, whatever, but then just got busy. 
um, and, you know, didn't see the point of, of finishing college. And if, if you are busy, you know, in some cases there isn't much point in finishing college because what you're learning there, what you're studying, um, is not necessarily what you're getting paid to do. Um, and, uh, if you're, you know, if you're getting paid to do something, you may as well focus on getting better at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it's funny because I still talk to my my band director from time to time. Oh, really? And that's usually the second or third thing she mentions in our conversation. When are you coming back to school? When are you <laughs> going to finish your college degree? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to do it? Uh, one day. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> one day. Yeah. She's like, you know, we have online courses now. You can take classes online. So that might be an option for me. Right. Right. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't blame you if it, uh, if it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I look at guys like, uh, uh Patrice Russian or, uh, Ndugu Chancellor, mm-hmm. you know, teaching over at USC is like, man, that might be a cool thing to do later down the line, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. So it's um, in the back of my mind, you know? Right. Right. It's, it's a good, it's a good thing to have in, in your back pocket. Um, I got, uh, I'm, I'm overeducated. I got two master's degrees, um, and haven't really used them for anything yet. <laughs> um, at, at, at least not in terms of teaching at the university level, but, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of like you, I'm kind of looking at that like, yeah, that, that looks like an okay, an okay gig. Just go there a couple days a week and, and you get to talk with, you know, students at a higher level and have, you know, musical conversations with your students at a higher level. Um, yeah, yeah. but I, I mean, tell me, Tell me if you have kind of a similar um, outlook on it. Like when you think about teaching college, when I think about teaching college, um, I don't really have an interest in doing the really deep jazz dive that so many college curriculums are built around. Um, I would, you know, I I have a background in jazz. I love playing jazz, but um, it's not it's not to the point that I see some of my colleagues who do teach at the collegiate level. Um, they, they just have, you know, an encyclopedic knowledge of, of jazz and jazz drumming and can play it all, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so like if you were to, I mean, you know, degree notwithstanding, if you were to find yourself in a teaching position at a university level, um, how would you, how would you structure a curriculum for young drummers? You know, I think, I would try to find a way to structure it um, where, one, I can pour into them, um, especially, you know, knowledge that I use on the road today, stuff that's current, you know. Mm -hmm. And two, I would try to figure out how to pull things out of them um, so they can find their voice and their personality at a young age, you know, because that's what these artists are looking for. They're looking for you to bring you to the situation. And mm. I will try to teach that or even just get that out of a student, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting uh, perspective because, you know, so many uh, lessons, whether they're at the collegiate level or, or not are, are designed. Like we think about it as the teacher, like, pouring information into the student, you know, mm-hmm. um, and th- that's important. And, and the student can obviously learn a ton from that. But, um, 
you know, maybe maybe there isn't uh, enough en- emphasis on uh, like bringing out of the student what that student wants to express. You know, of course, they got to get their techniques c- together. They got to get, you know, a bunch of listening done and, and reading and all that stuff. But, um, you know, people talk about how you, you kind of have to be a certain age before you start to find your own voice. Um, and but I think that that age is getting younger and younger, maybe. It is. It is getting younger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you should want the student to tap into that immediately. I mean, you think about it, you know, when uh, Miles had Tony Williams and, and Herbie, those guys were young. They were 17, 18 years old. Yeah. And they're already speaking on their instrument. You know, yeah. George Benson was 19 years old when he played with Jack McDuff and he was already George Benson. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So, you want to get the get that flowing out of the students as quickly as possible, you know. Right, right. Because I and think it, that sparks their creativity, you know. Sure, sure. The, like the guys, the guys you mentioned are obviously like singular talents, right? Like prodigious talents. But I don't, I don't know that a student has to be a prodigious talent to be given the freedom to kind of pursue the sounds they like, pursue the the voices that identify with them, instead of just saying like, "Here is the stack of shit that every drummer must learn." And <laughs> right, right, you know. right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's kind of cool to point and direct students in certain areas, but also see what they gravitate to, see what interests them, you know, and then try to try to build something around what interests the student, you know? Right. Because it's right. like, I have a way of, of looking at things or even playing music, but it's not. You know, it's not the 100% Bible. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's not like, this is the only way to play music. You know, that's, that's the fastest way to turn a student off, you know? In your early gigging life in Chicago, I mean, you mentioned there just started to be a bunch of touring happening, right? Yeah, yeah. What what kind of groups were you touring with at that time, and, and what level did it uh, sort of, I mean, did, did it did it start big, or was it kind of a, a, a steady incline into the, the higher profile tours? Um, I, I did it all. I mean, from the moment I got a car at 16 years old, <laughs> I did it all. I was playing at church i was playing in clubs you know um touring with gospel choirs which that was pretty much probably the start of my touring career was kind of touring with uh community choirs from chicago and um i was playing in clubs with you know four piece five piece bands um as up to as many as 12 piece bands you know kind of doing corporate parties and Mm -hmm. the wedding um band parties are really big here too you know yeah so that was a that was a lot of uh weekend warrior work i would do as well right right um and what about the um what about more like creative or original music in in chicago at that time like did you did you get in on some original bands or original projects um you know pretty much the the more creative side for me was in the gospel field you know i was um 
kind of recording with some local gospel groups around town. I uh, was working with uh, a couple of producers. Um, it's one producer by the name of Stuart Wilson, uh, another producer by the name of Daniel Witherspoon. And that's kind of where the creativity came in um, because they would have all these original gospel tunes, but, you know, it was like, here's the shape, here's the structure. Fill it up, fill it up, you know, do what, right. do what you do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Again, interesting. looking for you to bring you to the situation. You know? Right. I mean, you, you mentioned gospel in a, in a couple of contexts, both in terms of like touring with these community gospel choirs and in the context of, you know, like recording and, and helping write and shape original music. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, that's not really something I was aware of, <laughs> like oh, in, yeah. in oh, terms yeah. of, you know, and, and, you know, keep in mind, I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's not a big gospel scene there. Um, but, um, it's, it's, it's cool to hear that, that like, uh, a local gospel scene can provide drummers and musicians, uh, with th- the same kind of opportunities that, like a you know a singer songwriter scene can provide them with yeah 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 it was a couple of different groups around town like that um and a lot of guys that's in the music industry now came out of that you had guys like uh calvin rogers mm-hmm. um teddy campbell uh quinn anderson chris miscale oscar seaton uh, Felix Pollard, you know, we yeah. all kind of came out of that same circle. You know? I interviewed uh, Pudge Tribbett a couple months ago, who came out of the Philly scene. Um, yeah, he was definitely in that scene as well. Yeah, know? yeah, that's cool. Um, so, what do you think is uh, sort of uh, a, a driving force in Chicago music? I mean, obviously for you, it's 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 the gospel scene, and has been since you were a kid. Um, but are are there other sort of um, permanent things or or uh, artists on the on the Chicago scene that have that that the scene has kind of revolved around for uh, for a long time? Um, yeah, I think it's still a very heavy gospel connection here mm-hmm. um, in Chicago. You got artists like uh, Jonathan McReynolds, uh, Smokey Norfolk. Uh, Donald Lawrence, uh, Todd Delaney, you know, you got artists like that that uh, are pushing the envelope, even it within gospel music, trying to pour other genres in that gospel music. And uh, it's keeping the younger community thriving, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also a, a decent club scene around town. Um, a lot of people were kind of doing like the R&B open jam sessions and uh, the old school R&B thing is, is real heavy here in Chicago. Is that right? Yeah. That's yeah. cool. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah. You got and, to you know the bands that are, are targeting like the sixties and seventies. They're targeting bands like the Isley brothers, Commodores, uh, right. You know, Ohio players, Earth, sure. Fire. They're, they're targeting stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. There's some of that in Atlanta, um, and, but it's uh, probably probably not as as prevalent as in Chicago. Um, but it's it's 
you know, nobody, nobody doesn't like that music, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. like in, in terms of cover bands or top 40 music or whatever there, you know, country has its kind of, uh, you know, set and, and classic rock has its set. But I think there's just huge overlap from all kinds of different fan bases when it comes to that music you're talking about, R and B soul, um, <coughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, for me, excuse me, for me, it was like a lot of that music trained me unconsciously, you know, just as a kid growing up, you know, from from family functions or parties, you know, it was always some some Earth, Wind and Fire playing or um, some Al Green or, you know, like the meters. Right. And you're kind of getting all these drum parts just poured into you unconsciously, you know, and it's yeah. just like, it's becoming a, 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 a template of what music's supposed to sound like, you know? Right. And it's interesting. I think that's, that's one of the reasons that drummers like Gad and Weckl and Dennis Chambers like blow our minds. So, <laughs> so mm-hmm. hard because when you come up on that music that is just full of super simple, super funky, just clean drumming. And then you see somebody like Dennis Chambers or Weckl go at it. You're like, holy shit. What? I had no idea <laughs> that. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I, I think maybe that's a, a reason like drummers, I, I could be wrong, but it, it feels like young drummers like dive into complicated shit harder than than bassists or guitarists or you know and i think every young musician is sort of um prone to to pursuing like the choppy stuff you know but um for for uh for drummers who you know grow up listening to their parents music whether it's earth wind and fire or the beatles or just like you know songs when you hear drumming that's designed for a song and then you hear dave weckl or Jojo Mayer, <laughs> you know, right, for, right, for right. us, for us, it's even more mind blowing, <laughs> you know, for guitarists, like, uh, young, young guitarists are listening to all the same stuff, but the guitar is out front, you know, mm-hmm. like the stuff mm-hmm. we're first exposed to is the drums in the background. Um, and right. then when the drums take the foreground, we just, we can't even handle it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think now with, with technology, the younger player has um, a crazy amount of accessibility to things that we didn't have, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, they could go to YouTube and pull up uh, a Dennis Chambers clip or a Dave Weckl clip or Tony Royster or Thomas Pridgen, you know, yeah. um, and, and they can get their face ripped off immediately. Right. And then that's exactly what they want to do. They want to start ripping people's face off, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I think, you know, I think that's the difference now, you know, mm-hmm. they, they they have access to all the stuff we didn't have access to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to like post more videos of, of myself just like playing grooves and playing songs. Um, because like I've, I've gotten some, some feedback from some people about like there, there isn't enough of this kind of stuff on Instagram or YouTube or whatever. It's just, it's all chops. It's all face melt. Uh, and it's all amazing, but, uh, 
you know, it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be the change in that regard and, and post some more of the, some more, just the straight up groove two and four, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I'm going to do more of that myself. Um, I've mm-hmm. had a couple of younger guys even ask me to do that. I've had some young guys walk up to me after a set, just like, how do you hit the snare? the same way on beat two and four throughout a whole song. <laughs> I'm like, that's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. Right. You just know? Don't move. Like, just don't it's move. It's amazing man. to them <laughs> that I, I could do that. And I'm just like, that's second nature for me, you know? Right. But again, it's the way we came up, you know? Yeah. That's the drummer's job, you know? Right. Right. How do you hit the snare in the same spot every time? I mean, <laughs> the same spot, the same way. You know, I oh. had one guy come up to me. He's like, man, it's amazing how, you know, you play your hi-hat in one volume, you play your snare in another another volume. It's almost like you're pre-mixed, you know? Yeah. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's that's like going up to a guitarist and saying, like, man, it's it's amazing how the strap, like, holds the guitar over your shoulder. Like, I've never seen that. <laughs> Right, and, and you're able to use both your hands to play it at the same time. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> oh, man. Um, so is there a point in your career when, because I, I know there's historically just been a ton of session work in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, if the, if the you know, early part of your career was kind of dominated by touring, um, well, let me put it this way. What what kind of a ratio of like touring to session work or live work to session work does your career look like now? Um, I'd say it's pretty much probably 70% live and maybe 30% studio work right Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Um, mainly, mainly because everyone thinks I'm gone all the time. Right. Right. That's a common problem. a conscious decision to go out and just hear cats playing. Guys are like, oh, man, I didn't know you were in town. It's like, yeah, I own property here. I live right. here. I live here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, I, I do have um, a couple of producers that I still work with around town and, and, and call me up for some stuff. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah. And this is another thing I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier a couple producers that you've had relationships with for a while. Um, and has that like, ha- have those relationships, um, and that work that you get fairly consistently, um, made it kind of like unnecessary to, uh, record yourself at home, like set up your own rig and do remote recording, or have you done that as well? Well, um, uh, I'm definitely, um, in the process of setting up a home um, recording studio, just because uh, I do have a few other producers that um, I have relationships with that live out of state, and they would, you know, would like for me to play on some stuff, but they're like, man, I can't afford studio time, or, you know, the budgets on these projects are really small. Um, but I've strayed away from that for so long, just for the simple fact that I still like to get out of the house. It's something about getting dressed and going to a studio to create and, you know, be in this creative space and then mm-hmm. coming back home, you know, I've always feared if I set up a home studio, I would never get dressed. I would just, 
<laughs> I would live in pajamas and eat cereal probably forever in a day. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And for, for a lot of guys, that's like reason number one to do it. Um, right. Right. But, uh, I but yeah, like like, to go out and interact with people, you know? Yeah. The process of, of being in a recording studio with people and just bouncing ideas around and like coming up with a, a you know, a strategy and a narrative in more of a group setting. Is, that's the main part, man. Yeah. Getting ideas from other musicians, mm-hmm. you know, some of the best drum stuff is created by non-drummers, yep. you know, yep. because they're not thinking technically. We think technically, but these guys are just thinking from a sonic perspective. Oh, it would be cool, you know, to play the kick on the and and, you know, maybe the hi-hat open it on beat one or something, you know, just something you wouldn't even think of as a drummer. You know, right. another musician might have a totally different concept that's way cooler than what you would ever come up with. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's I think something that's I'm I'm wondering how it's going to affect music and and songs over the next ten years or something because you know more and more drummers and musicians in general are just working alone in a room, um, mm-hmm. and, and I I think there are some you know there are some positive things about that but but like you said what's what's missing in that context is just that immediate interaction that interplay that exchange of ideas, um, you know. Uh, with just all the people who are involved in, in making a record. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I interviewed, um, uh, a guy named Mike Levesque a few months ago, who's a Boston area drummer, um, okay. and does tons of session work with, um, with one producer in particular, and they've been working together for decades. And he talked about how, you know, with, with the amount of work he does with this producer, you know, different studios, different artists and stuff, he doesn't need to set up his own home studio. He would in fact be like taking work away from that producer. He's like, uh, you know, I've already got, I've already got everything in place in terms of relationships and facilities and everything. I do not need to set up my own place. But I think he said, like, even, even if I did set up my own place, you know, part of what I love about recording and, and making records is like, like we were talking about just being in a room with people talking with the songwriter in person about, um, you know, what, what this song is about and how he wants it to unfold. And you can have those conversations by, you know, via email, but it's, it's not the same as just in the moment in the room together. Yeah. And it's something about, you know, being put on the spot as well. Yeah. You might've, you know, brought some stuff, some certain gear to this session. It's like, Oh, but I was thinking of this type of snare drum sound. And it's like, man, I got that snare drum at home. But now you have to create that right here on the spot. So right. what am I going to do? You know, is it is it duct tape? Is it napkins? Is it a T-shirt on top of the snare? You know, it's something about that creative moment right there, right here, right now. You know? Right, right. Um, and yeah, it creates it creates sort of extra um, like extra juice in the in the end result. I think just that spontaneity, that, that kind of like creative spark that, uh, that you need to deliver in that moment, as opposed to sitting at home by yourself in your pajamas, having all the time and, you know, all the, (laughs) everything you need to overthink and overproduce (laughs) whatever you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I know Um, I was talking, um, with another drummer friend of mine who did set up a home studio and he's like, man, it's great. You know, I got access to everything I need right here, you know. 
and he just goes back and forth with these producers all day. But it's it's just something. It's a different energy about being under a gun, being under a certain time restraint. You know, like we got to done and we got to get it done now. You know. Right, right. And you thrive off that. I do, man. I I like that energy. You know, um, there's something about getting some sweat rolling and, and <laughs> energy there. You know. Right, right. And like watching the clock, like we've been, we've been here for seven hours. Like, let's, <laughs> let's get <Yeah>. it done. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and those type of sessions haven't happened for me in a while. Uh, just because you got a lot of guys, a lot of producers that, that got pre-production tracks and they sent out the charts ahead of time. So you kind of have an idea, you know, but still it's like, you know, if they allot three hours and you go in and knock it out an hour and a half, you're saving this producer money, so guess who's getting a call back? So I want to jump ahead a little bit to just a, a couple of the the big names that are on your are uh, that have appeared on your resume over the years, and I'm I'm looking at the top of them. It's it's George Benson and Destiny's Child, um, two very different acts uh, in in many ways. Um, but d- how how long have you been? Um, First of all, like you, you still play with George Benson, right? Yes, I'm still with George Benson. And and at what time in your career did the Destiny's Child thing happen? That was um, um, early 2000, um, up until about 2003. Okay. Yeah. Is that group from Chicago? No, no, they're um, actually they had a bass player from Chicago uh, by the name of Ethan Farmer. And uh, Ethan and I toured together a lot early in the early days uh, with a lot of gospel artists. And when he moved to L.A., he's like, man, as soon as I get a chance, I'm going to turn you on to something. And uh, he turned me on to the Destiny's Child gig. He actually, he got the Janet Jackson gig um, before he got to turn me on to the, the Destiny's Child gig. So he got another Chicago bass player to take his place. But he told him when his drum chair opens up, you got to get Kahari Parker in there. That's so cool. It, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at what point at, in in you know Destiny's Child's trajectory was this? This was um, around the time when Independent Women was out. I'm a Survivor was out, um, and this was right around the time um, later in that that touring season when uh, Beyonce started to go solo. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And I actually did a couple of the solo shows with her uh, before she went to the all girl band. Oh, cool. Cool. So, so at that, that, you know, destiny's child was a thing already when you, when you kind of joined up with them. Yeah. Like when I first went out um, for rehearsals, uh, we rehearsed a few days at center stage in LA and then, uh, the next set of rehearsals was at the Sony movie lot because the production and the stage was so big, they had to do it in a movie lot. Yeah, right there in Culver City. In Culver City, yeah. yeah. That's when I realized, like, this is a major tour. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, was that, that sounded like a, you know, a step up from, from what you had been doing prior. Um in kind of the same way that maybe that first Christmas tour was like, oh, holy shit, this is like a real, <laughs> a real deal. Yeah, 
Yeah, um, yeah. Did you did you find yourself like on on that tour or at the beginning of you know that rehearsal process? Uh, were there some ways that you once again found yourself like a little bit out of your depth and like holy shit, I got to get on top of whatever this is? Definitely, um, I had to to figure out um, just even how to pace myself and um, build stamina because we were playing stadiums. You know, we yeah wasn't any little music halls or anything like that. They were playing, you know, 8,000 to 10,000 people every night. And it's just like to play on that level every night, you got to realize when to ramp it up, when you can kind of take a break and kind of pull back a little bit and then, you know, finish out the, the, sto- the show strong and big, you know. And yeah. uh, that was something I really had to figure out because I was just exhausted my first couple of shows, you know? And what was exhausting you? Like, were you, were you playing that much louder or was it a really long show or was it just kind of the, the, the amount of energy you had to put out to kind of fill a room that size? It was definitely, um, the energy because it was high level energy from beat one. And I had never played from that way to start to finish before, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, just even playing the size arenas that we were playing, you know, I had to learn how. Um, I, funny, I had a um, conversation with the front of house engineer, and he said, you don't have to give me 120% every time. Let me do my job, and you do your job. Yeah. So that taught me how to relax a little bit more, too. Like, let the front of house guy mix the show, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a skill that I think a lot of drummers don't have. And it's it's something that I am still definitely working on. Just, you know, finding finding the balance between the size of the room and and, you know, the energy that you need to put into the drums, because like the mics can't do all the work. You know, you have to put you have to put a certain amount of energy, um, sometimes more than others. But just that that balance between like how loud do I have to play? How much of this room do I have to fill up? Um, it's a really tricky thing that, that is, is, you know, it's hard to practice. Um, it's hard to practice in your room at home. Like it's kind of, it's something, it's something you can only learn on the job and every job is different. Every room is different. Every sound system, you know, the, the energy that, that each different act needs, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, even sometimes with the same act in a similar room, like you might get a ton of energy from one audience and nothing from another audience. And, and it'll just, you know, you'll, you'll end one show just completely exhausted, <clears throat> discouraged, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing really changed. It's that energy <laughs> transfer is, is something that's, you know, kind of mysterious to me and something that I'm more and more aware of. Yeah. And it definitely, it teaches you how to use all of your instincts, you know, um, your ears and, and your eyes and, you know, um, but definitely your ears, learning how to listen to a room, just trying to be very consistent. You know, a lot of uh, sound engineers love that about a player. If he's consistent, I can mix the crap out of this guy, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And like you said, mix yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, you know, if all they, they got to do is push faders up, 
and don't have to be constantly riding things. <laughs> um, you know, if your sound is just kind of comes as a package deal, I think that makes a lot of engineers really happy. Very happy. Very happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did the, uh, George Benson gig come about? Actually that, um, I went in as a sub, my friend Oscar Seaton was playing drums with George and, uh, George had a six week European tour, um, over the summer of 2014 and Oscar was, was double booked. He had Lionel Richie that summer. So he's like, man, can you come in and cover these six weeks? You know, uh, the music director at the time, David Garfield, um, it's just like, it would be nice to get some fresh blood in here. You know, somebody who's never done the gig before. And so Oscar immediately thought of me and they recommended me for it, which was, uh, was kind of, kind of crazy because David was kind of nervous with me being from Chicago and he was in LA, but I told him, I said, dude, what do you need for me to make this happen? And he was like, man, um, I would just love to play a few tunes with you. You know, I said, done. I flew myself out to David's house. I flew out of Chicago, like a 10 o'clock flight in the morning, went out to his house, literally played uh, breathing with him and another George Benson tune and went back to the airport and flew back to Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, dude, anybody with that type of dedication has got the gig, you know? Wow. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. Um, So um, I did the, the six week tour. And immediately Oscar hit me. It's like, man, uh, Lionel Richie just booked me for the rest of the year. Can you finish out the year with George Benson? It's like, oh, let me think about it. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and so, um, which was crazy in, it, in itself because I had started playing with Jeffrey Osborne a few months earlier. And uh, he wanted me to be his permanent drummer as well. So it just happened to work out where all the dates, did not conflict with each other. So I was able to do both the gigs that year in 2014. Cool. Cool. Um, so as a, as a band leader, uh, what does George Benson require? Um, George is a very unique individual. Uh, George will make suggestions, but he's quick to tell you, I'm not trying to tell you how to play, but, (laughs) I'm just pointing you in a, a direction. Mm-hmm. I want you to play how you play. So that's the kind of guy he is, you know, but it's more, he's at the point of his career where he's hired music directors. That's making sure he's got the meat of his tunes there. Mm-hmm. A lot, you know, um, they, they really concentrate on more of the original parts. Um, Cause you know, over the years, things can kind of get away from that. Yeah. But the music director he's got now is, is like, let's do the original parts. These songs were hits for a reason, you know. Mm-hmm. So we'll go back and, and, and get that stuff. And by the time George walks in, he's like, yep, sounds like the record. Let's go. Let's move on. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And I would imagine that that you're not necessarily playing the records note for note um, you know, on every song, but, uh, are you, are you kind of adhering more to just the spirit and, and the vibe of the record rather than trying to reinvent, you know, a a song into something different? 
Yeah, definitely. Just trying to like cop the original grooves, but like not trying to get it feel for feel, note for note. Right. Uh, George still wants you to be an individual, but you know, it was like uh, we were playing Breezing, and I was playing a version that Oscar Seaton had played for years because they had sent me a live tape. But George was like, just take a listen to the original and, and, and uh, we'll come back to soundcheck tomorrow and we'll see how that feels. Mm-hmm. And it was just as simple as a kick pattern that Harvey Mason played on the original. I was going to ask who it was. So it was Harvey. It was Harvey Mason on the original. Cool. Yeah. Cool. And that was, that was the whole thing that, that changed the whole vibe for George, and he was yeah. so happy with that. You know, that's cool. Did did Harvey play on uh, on Broadway and and that other, you know, uh, George Benson hits? Yeah, Harvey played on on Broadway, played on uh, Affirmation, so mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of the hits Harvey played on, and uh, Steve Gadd played on a lot of that stuff too. Yeah, yeah. God, yeah. what what didn't Steve Gadd fucking play on? Amazing. He was everywhere, dude. Like, <laughs> literally, he was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just unreal. Um, uh, another guy like that who I've I've really wanted to interview and I I cannot get in touch with him is Russ Kunkel. Um, mm. You know, because he's not as well known as as uh, you know a guy like Gad, and he's not a soloist at all. Like he is just a meat and potatoes drummer. But man, you go back to you know some of the '70s stuff, all that Laurel Canyon crowd. Like Russ Kunkel is just all over that stuff, and he's yeah, been all he's yeah. been all over a bunch of stuff for for decades. Um, <laughs> have you gotten to talk with uh, Harvey or or Steve or any of the Benson original drummers? I got to talk to Harvey uh, briefly at the Hollywood Bowl a few years ago. He uh, George was playing the show there, and Harvey was just kind of hanging out backstage. Mm-hmm. And the conversation was brief, just because everybody was at him at that that concert. Right. But I just I got to shake his hand and I thanked him just for all of the the grooves and stuff that he's laid down for us to listen to and learn from. You know. Yeah. And he was very appreciative of that, man. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. It's, it's a good moment when you can, when you can just like thank a dude like that. Cause I'm sure, I'm sure they're used to, like you said, people just being all over them, wanting to pick their brain or, you know, wanting to get a selfie with them or, or whatever. But, um, those, those moments where you can just kind of look an idol in the eye and just say, thank you for the music, <laughs> you know, I think that's that, the bomb, bro. Yeah. Like I was on this show in France. And Steve Gadd band was opening for George Benson. Oh, cool! And uh, so we got Man, that's a, a, that's a full circle a, thing, isn't it? Like he, you know, Gadd recorded with circle. Benson, and then his band is opening years later. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, but I, I did. I had one of those selfie moments just before he 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 got out of there. You know, mm-hmm. but it was just like, man, I would just love to sit there and just have a whole conversation with him. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um. So. Uh, the other thing on your, I was reading an article about you, or maybe it was part of your bio or something, but it mentioned that you were a resident musician at Oprah's Harpo Studios in Chicago. Yeah. Um, what was that gig? I, that was um, the second coming of the Rosie O'Donnell show. Oh. <laughs> yeah. She, um, she was filming at Harpo Studios here in Chicago. Because uh, I guess she's from Chicago too, isn't she? No, no, she was a New York girl, and she actually had an all-New York band 
but uh, they couldn't find a drummer for some reason that wanted to come to Chicago. And then they auditioned a few drummers here in Chicago. And it actually, um, it was a friend of mine, another drummer recommended me for the gig. You know, mm -hmm. he was like, I know exactly what you're looking for. Call this guy. He's the guy you're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, my buddy, Charles, Heath, excellent drummer here in Chicago. He was like, I know what they're looking for. You're the guy. So That's cool. And then, uh, another bass player, uh, Richard Patterson, also turned me on to that. He knew the bass player that was playing for the show. So it's like, mm -hmm. man, we keep in your name. You got to be the guy, you know. That's cool. So, like, did did you have to audition in in, in any way, or did you just kind of walk on? You know what? It was. They said it was an audition, but I think I had the gig before I even got there. You know. Right. Right. Uh, a lot of times, that's kind of how it goes. Like, they have a they have a person. They're like, we're pretty sure this is going to be the guy, uh, but they just start working, and that's kind of the audition. And you know. Yeah, and it was crazy because it was just like. It was a total corporate schedule, you know, like yeah. oh, seven in the morning, you know, yeah. we work nine, 10 o'clock. We're on camera and then we take a lunch break and, you know, we're back at one and we're out of here by three, three thirty, you know. So it was like that was a whole different world for me. You know, it's a J.O.B. It was a job, man. Yeah. It was a job. I had a parking space and everything. Right. With your name on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little piece of paper that blew away in the, the, the every so often. <laughs> right. Right. Um and on the on the subject of auditions, um we've we've talked about how, you know, the the idea of an audition like it it doesn't really happen very often in the professional world. Like usually it's, you know, by recommendation by word of mouth and if there is an audition, you know, the list of people auditioning is also usually recommended like you need you know they're going to audition 10 people and they get recommendations for who to who to ask um yeah. but with the with the benson gig i mean you you mentioned you you flew where was it you flew to i flew to california from chicago right. to the okay. LA. and yeah. and you had you had an audition with the md not with benson himself no no with david garfield the music director yeah okay so what was your approach going into that i mean you you obviously knew that this was going to be like an audition situation um uh you know there wasn't going to be like a panel of judges sitting there or whatever but you know you're going in for for a trial um so yeah. what was your what was your mentality going into that it was um it was for that situation it was fairly easy for me for the simple fact that he had sent me five tunes to, to check out and uh, it's like, you know, we're just going to play through these tunes and, and you know, it's going to be easy. So, it, you know, it's like stuff I did all my life, learn songs and go play them, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was the easy, the hardest part was flying to California, you know. <laughs> and then by the time I got to David's house, um, I told him that I had been a big fan of his for years because he played with that band Charisma that Vinny Caliuta was in. Yeah. So I was like, you know, and I've noticed him from playing with Vinny Caliuta on Modern Drum Festival and all this type stuff. And so it, it wound up turning out to be a big hang. And he's like, gave me all this music. He gave me all these CDs with Vinny playing on it, with Carlos Vega playing on it. You know, it's like, oh man, you're going to love this. You're going to love that, you know. Oh, that's cool. So it, it turned out to be a big hang more than 
a stressful situation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's always such a good sign. Like if you, you know, if you can just get along with a person and you have kind of similar, similar interests, similar motivations, uh, that's, you know, that's worth more than the playing a lot of times. Yeah. Cause you realize you're only on stage 90 minutes max, you know, yeah. you know, the rest of the 22 and a half hours of the day, if you're on tour and you're on a bus, you're going to spend with these guys, you know? So you have to be able to get along with people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're in this small space with them for, for hours on end, you know? Right. And it kind of, that, that story kind of reminds me like how, like even in our, in an audition situation, when you're asked to audition, like how little of it is in your control. Um, because you, you know, you obviously practice your ass off. You prepared for that audition. You, uh, you played well, but all that preparation and, and your, your performance in the audition was kind of rendered moot by the fact that the two of you just got along so well. Right. You you could have played almost anything in that. Like if you were just competent in that audition, you know, the fact that you got on well was like, okay, this is the guy. Um, and if you didn't get on well, you know, you could have just completely smashed the audition, just burned it down. But if like, if there's no vibe there personally, that's, that's rendered moot also. Yeah. Here's the door. See you later. (laughs) Right. You sound amazing. Don't like you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I've, I've seen that, that happen to guys, you know, just like, there's no vibe there. It's just nothing, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, guys don't even talk to each other. It's like, wow, that's, that's so stressful. You know, that's a tense situation, you know? Right. Right. And I think sometimes, sometimes it is, uh, due to, um, you know, flawed personalities, uh, whether it's, you know, vibing or kind of hostility or big egos or, or one of those things. But, but other times, like there's just no spark there. It's like dating, you know, like sometimes there's mm-hmm. a thing and sometimes like, this is a perfectly nice person, but I'm just not feeling anything. So like, <laughs> I think that yeah. that dynamic in music is, is, is really powerful. Um, you know, whether, just whether that spark is there or not. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely created lifelong friends from music, you know. Um, The bass player from Destiny's Child, Maurice Fitzgerald, and I, we toured together with them, but we still play together to this day. We, you know, call each other, hey, man, what are you doing? Let's go grab something to eat, you know, and we'll go hang out, you know. Yeah. Uh, I still talk to David Garfield, even though he's not MD in George anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. he's I just call them and say, hey, you know, and we'll have a good conversation, which is another lost art form. People having conversations. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the reasons we do this, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, on the phone earlier, you're, you're getting ready to get on a cruise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting ready to do uh, the smooth jazz cruise. With George? No, it's actually... Um, um, the Smooth Jazz Cruise is put on by this guy named Michael Lazaroff, and he has three house bands, uh, and it's somewhere between 23 to 24 different artists on these cruises. Oh, wow. So we split the work up. You know, I think it's like something like six artists apiece with the band. Wow. On this one, I get to play with uh, with Boney James, um, Patrick Stewart, 
violinist Damien Escobar, uh, Jeff Lorber, uh, a couple of other people I'm forgetting, I'm sure. Oh, this singer named Mesa from D.C. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I get to I get to play with a lot of different artists on this cruise. So it sounds like you've been having to learn a bunch of music. Definitely. There's <laughs> been a lot of charts flying around here. Yeah, yeah. So are you at, are you shedding those at home? Like what's your what's your preparation for that? Are you in contact with the artists? Do you just have to show up and lay this shit down? Do you get to rehearse with them? What what happens? Well, they um we did the first edition of this cruise back in January. So we played the shows down once. But the artists they send a drop box of tunes and charts. And then we'll have a week's worth of rehearsals in L.A. uh, before the first cruise. So the second cruise is just, you know, do your homework and remember what we did the first time. Right. And and do it again. (laughs) Right. That's a that's a cool gig, man. I uh, uh, cruises just seem to be flying around all over the world. It seems to be a more and more common thing for for musicians and bands to be working on cruises, not not necessarily um like you know in the the lounge band for the cruise ship for nine months or whatever it is but but like you um just kind of getting on the boat for a bit and then then back to regular life um yeah i like it because it's uh it's only a few weeks out the year you mm-hmm. know like and it's usually january february that's so the perfect time to get out of chicago and get some yeah good you know Man. yeah <laughs> but and then it's like, you know, you start to, to get your fan favorites on these boats and it becomes like a big family reunion of, uh, of some sorts of like that, you know. And, um, you know, you get on the cruise and, and they're, they're clapping for you like, oh, there's Gary Parker. I remember him from last year, yada, 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 you know. So it, it's become a, a whole little community in itself, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is the this is this a second time you've done that particular cruise? I've been doing these cruises now, I think since 2013. Huh. That's cool. Yeah. So like I said, it's great. It's once a year or twice a year, you know, and you go in, you do what you do and and then you're off and you're back to regular life, you know? Right. Right. And was there a, was there a special, uh, inroad into that kind of work or did it happen the same way that pretty much everything else happens with, you know, word of mouth, you got a relationship with somebody. Yeah, it was actually, uh, it was word of mouth. Um, this guitarist named Jerry Johnson, um, knew the music director for the cruise and they were looking for a third drummer. Um, I don't know what happened with the drummer that was in that particular band, but he's like, we need a new drummer. And so we were going to Kansas city to play a gig with the music director. And Jerry had been telling him about me and he was like, you know, just kind of go in and you slam this gig. I'm definitely sure you're going to get the cruise gig, you know? Mm -hmm. And we played a few songs in soundcheck with Brian Simpson. That's the music director. And, uh, he, stepped away from the stage and was on his phone immediately, like after the first tune. And it's like, hey, Brian, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm telling them we got a new drummer for the crew. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, what with, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to put the kibosh on it or anything, but, but what with the uh, coronavirus party that we're having right now, what, uh, what are your thoughts about getting on a boat? <laughs> You know, uh, it's definitely something that's uh, that's in the back of your mind, you know. 
but I also think about how lucrative this is for the cruise lines, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they're, they're taking every step possible, um, to make sure that the coronavirus is not aboard the ship, you know, <laughs> uh, right. They definitely, they sent out emails actually a couple of days ago, just, you know, reminding people to wash their hands, uh, to be, you know, just sanitary. And, uh, if you have a, um, uh, illness or you know if, if you you have a fever they're not going to let you on the ship so they're definitely yeah. they're taking every precaution that i think is necessary yeah so something in the mind but you know i'm still going to go and, and and try it you know sure and that's that's one of the advantages i mean you mentioned kind of the corporate environment that we find ourselves in you know whether it's a tv show or a cruise or or something um and I, I think that's one of the advantages of, of that kind of environment is because that that kind of shit is is usually on the up and up. Whereas with, you know, on a on like with a touring band or, or something, it's it's kind of the Wild West. You know, a bunch of us are, are running around without insurance and, um, you know, stuff stuff usually doesn't go wrong. But if you know, I, I found myself in a couple situations where I was like, if 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 shit went really wrong. <laughs> on this little yeah. tour like what would happen <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah it's yeah, good to be know, in a little bit more of a secure situation <laughs> yeah it's definitely you know you you say a prayer and you pray that, that god keeps his hand on you you know and, and mm-hmm. keeps his hand on your situation to make sure everything is good you know so i can remember um it was a few years ago i was on the cruise and i had gotten sick on the cruise i was in a sound check and the cruise was kind of rocking a little bit and I felt something and I was like, Oh, I'm going to fight through it. And after the sound check, I'll go back to my room and chill out. And the last tune, I just like, Ugh! Oh no. Threw up all over my sheet music. And, you know, oh, they, they wished me out of there. Like it was like a hazmat group showed up. With white sheets. <laughs> It was crazy. It's like, oh, you got to go down to the infirmary. And, you know, they, they made me go to my room. It's like, you got to stay in your room. We'll check on you in a few hours. Eat green apples. And it was very important to them that, you know, I didn't spread anything right. more than me being sick, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was just for like a, a little flu or something. That was actually just motion sickness oh i got you wow yeah 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 but to them it was like what if this is not motion sickness so we gotta we gotta isolate this guy immediately right right man well they got it sounds like they got it uh they got it five by five over there so (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah. (laughs) yeah well well man uh best of luck best of luck on the cruise stay healthy stay safe and uh thanks thanks so much for talking with us man Ah, man, thank you so much for having me, man. I think this is great what you're doing. I really appreciate the opportunity, brother. Thanks again to Kahari for hanging out. I have talked to him since we recorded that interview, and you'll be relieved to know that he did not end up on that cruise. That gig, like so many others, got canceled. It is a huge drag. I think we're all in the same boat as far as lost work, uh, pun intended. But staying home is the right thing to do right now. So uh, wishing you all the best during these weird days. Keep shedding, keep creating, keep listening, and hopefully we'll all be back out there before too long. 
Next week, Matthew Krause is talking with L.A. veteran Jimmy Paxson, who has been touring with the Dixie Chicks. Look forward to that. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. Cheers.